Welcome in to the Hawk Zone podcast, your look into KU athletics. And unfortunately for all of the KU basketball fans listening out there, this will be the episode nobody wanted us to record this week. The season wrap-up following the Elite Eight loss to Oregon for KU basketball, 74-60 to at Sprint Center on Saturday night. The Jayhawks once again falling on the cusp of the final four. We're going to break it all down for you and kind of look ahead to next year at the end of this show. But first, I have to introduce myself. I'm Matt Galloway, the KU beat reporter for the Topeka Capital Journal and Hawkstone.com. And joining me, as always, Scott Chasen, the student correspondent for the Capital Journal uh, and Hawkstone.com. Scott, what's up? Not much. Uh, had Subway for lunch today and then got really tired. So I Googled, because this is like a common occurrence, so I Googled why that might be happening. And the first result, I'm not joking, says I might have diabetes. So I'm never going on the internet again. Hmm. Well, you could also never go to Subway again. Yeah, but I like Subway. And as I found out today, there is one literally three blocks from where I live. But don't you like the internet? That's true. That's a good point. So I guess I need to choose between my hunger for like a turkey sandwich on Italian uh, and the internet. That's that's. I'll have to think about that. We'll have plenty like, of time. I don't know. I feel like I have the sniffles or something, and everything. Every time I look it up, it tells me I have some kind of rare yeah. heart, heart and foot disease. Yeah, but but I think the subway thing is a, is oddly specific. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, just go to what just I have determined. Well, what I've what what I've determined is, someone said there's a lot of sugar in the bread, and that makes some people tired. So I'm just going to pretend like that makes sense and move on. But I have no idea. Yeah, get the get the uh, sugar free bread. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, um, I think a lot of KU fans have been feeling tired this week. Not just the weather. I don't think we've seen the sun here in Lawrence for like a week. But uh, the Jayhawks, their season's over. A lot of gloomy feelings around town. Uh, as we mentioned, to number three seed Oregon, a 74-60 to 60 loss, 14 points, the second biggest margin of defeat for the Jayhawks this season. Uh, might be a little bit misleading. They got it down to six uh, with about three minutes left. But as as we mentioned uh, off air, this is a, I mean, this was a, a game that KU only led for 32 seconds. This was pretty much, you know, a very decisive game, one that Bill Self said, you know, bluntly, this stings, but the better team won tonight. Uh, with all of that in mind, Scott, the first question I have to ask you right off the top here, should KU fans consider this season a disappointment? Everything that you know happened this year, 31-5, and five, won the Big 12 by four games, um, player of the year in Frank Mason, arguably one of the best freshmen that Bill Self has ever coached in Josh Jackson. Maybe not arguably. I mean, he definitely is, but arguably the best. Should KU fans consider this season a disappointment falling short of the elite eight or of the final four in the elite eight and falling so short with such a raucous home court advantage in front of a neutral site that they'll ever get, uh, you know, just falling just short of the final four. What, what do you think? Uh, my answer actually doesn't change a whole lot on this every year. It depends some years, you know, like, uh, if the team, you know, like the UNI year, that, that I would consider that your disappointment. I don't think tournaments, though, generally can make your year dis- a disappointment. I think it can make it disappointing. I think it's a disappointing end to the season. It's a disappointing, uh, maybe a disappointing tournament. You, could, I think that'd be fair to say. At the same time, you mentioned a lot of things. I, I think if you looked at the beginning of the year, if you looked where this team was after one game and maybe even after two, I know they beat number one Duke in Madison Square Garden after blowing a late lead, but Duke was without a lot of players. And there were legitimate concerns at that time about this team being a top five team, being as good as the team from last year, which I know we disagree about which one was better. Better. But that that team, you know, being the number one overall seed, there were a lot of questions about would this team even win the Big 12? They had that murderer's row stretch where they played West Virginia, Kentucky, Baylor. So I look at all that. I look at all the things that they got through. And I, I would not if I'm if I'm looking at I, I'm not considering it a disappointment from a KU perspective. I'd say it at a disappointing end. But I think you take everything into account, including an elite eight, which. Elite eight is still pretty good, maybe not for Kansas, but it's it's a you know it's winning three games in the tournament. I think it's I think it's a solid year, not a great year, maybe not a good year, but certainly not a disappointment. I would call it. I would say it's a great year, but I think KU fans have every right to feel disappointed. 
Sure, I think sure. If you look, I think if you look at it like I, th- I would look at it like this: in the vacuum, if if this if KU's team last year won the national title, or if KU's team last year made the final four, nobody would consider this year a disappointment, considering the injuries that they've had with Yudoka Azubuki, considering the massive, massive disappointment, disappointing season that they got out of Carlton Bragg. The uh, unknowns that they had from a lot of different aspects going in. You know, Bill Self has never played the four guard lineup extensively. He pretty much played it exclusively this year. Uh, the question marks about Landon Lucas at the beginning of the year, really up until the point where uh, right around the time Yudoka Azabuki got injured. I think, you know, anytime you have uh, a national player of the year, which, you know, nobody thought he would do that coming into the season, Frank Mason, but a, a guy that a lot of people respected and, and a guy that was, you know, second team all Big 12 a couple times. And, and you have maybe the best freshman in the country or the top group. You're not exactly making chicken salad out of chicken spit to, to you know, kind of alter a saying a little <laughs> bit. But but it was it was a year when Bill Self had to, you know, make a lot of tweaks and a lot of changes. And I think if if you just look at this year by itself, I don't think there's any way you can consider it a disappointment. Obviously, KU fans have a right to be disappointed, but I would never consider this a disappointment. Yeah. But I think when you pile it on to the last few years, really since they made the national title game and finished up as the runner-up to that dominant Kentucky team with Anthony Davis, I think it's just you're starting to see it wear on KU fans a little mm-hmm. bit. And I think the most disappointing part of it is – Dave Scretta, who's covered so many events for the AP, uh, said that it was the loudest he's ever heard the Sprint Center. I mean, the Sprint Center showed up for that Elite Eight game, and the Jayhawks just never, ever really were in any sort of a rhythm in that game. And, you know, they they could potentially, I mean, they could, we're going to talk a little bit later about how different the team could look next year, but they could potentially, I believe, have a Wichita-Omaha two-step next yep, year to the Final that's Four. that's correct. Yep. But even then, that's not going to be as big of an, an advantage as Kansas City. Um, and that, and again, that they, they, they put in so much work to win the Big 12 by four games and to get to the point where they could even have Kansas City as, as an option. It was a golden opportunity. And with the way that the Final Four has really opened up other than North Carolina, this is really just a, a, a great opportunity for KU to have won a national title. And we know about Bill Self's success against Roy Williams' teams in the tournament. Mm-hmm. I think the nature of the, the NCAA tournament to me is the most exciting postseason in sports, and it's also by far, by far, the worst at determining the best team in your sport. Mm-hmm. I think anybody can look at South Carolina, and you can think about what Frank Martin has done, and think you know they're playing really well, and the team fits his identity, and be happy for him, and all of that. For, South Carolina is not one of the top four teams in the country; they just aren't, and. For South Carolina to be in a Final Four and KU, it's the nature of the beast. But I think you have to take that into account when you consider whether or not this was a disappointment for KU. Yeah. Well, no, I thought I think you made a, a number of great points. I I I totally agree. Like I said, I, I I would not consider this year a disappointment. I think there are years though. Like I'll bring I'll go back to that UNI year where I think you could consider that a disappointment just because when when you lose in the first weekend there are there is something about it like you basically play the whole season for just to give yourself a shot in the tournament and then you don't even you know you win one game against the 16 seed and then you go home. So I think years like that but no at the same time I agree with just about everything you said. I think before the season if you you know if you sat KU fans down and said Look, you're going to lose your season opener. You're going to go on to dominate the Big 12, including winning, you know, some ridiculous games. It'll all it'll be the closest league in the country, according to, you know, Ken Palm. And honestly, just watching the games, uh, you're going to, you know, go to the Big 12 tournament. You may not. You're, you're going to falter there, but then you'll go on a nice Elite Eight run. You'll get bounced by a good team. They'd be like, OK, that seems like a pretty I don't want to say average, but like, OK, seems like a pretty like, solid year. Like like Duke's year was a disappointment. Like Duke, sure, yes. Duke's year was far, far, far more disappointing than KU. Yeah, Even well, having the, said yeah, that, yeah. KU fans, I do think, have a, a right to feel disappointed I, because... Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit, though. The the constant Elite Eight and... and do you, so when you consider a season, do, do you think it should be considered in the context of other seasons? Because I've, I've never been one like uh, to... to I've, that's actually not crossed my mind before, that like... 
I guess a team loses in the Elite Eight a bunch of times. Like, I've always thought you more consider, like, aspects of the mm-hmm. team disappointing rather than the the season a disappointment. Well, I think you have to try to, mm-hmm. to separate it. I think you have to try to look at this season completely divorced from last year. But that kind of brings me into the second thing I wanted to talk about with you. Should Do you feel that KU fans should feel that or do you feel like this is a more painful loss for KU fans than last year's loss against Villanova? That was obviously a lot closer. That was a team that had Perry Ellis, Wayne Selden, Brandon mm-hmm. Green. Um it was a it was a a loss to an eventual national champion. We obviously don't know what Oregon is going to do at this point. Do you feel like this season this loss is more painful than that one? Keeping in mind that Bill Self has said that and you can also address whether you think this is accurate or not, but and he would know more than us probably, but the elite eight is the toughest round in the tournament and the, yeah. uh, um, and the most painful one to lose. Yeah. Well, I, I think it probably is the most painful round to lose in, especially for an elite top level coach. I was on eight ten sports radio. I went in studio with Josh Briscoe and we talked for an hour and this, this topic actually came up of, you know, the elite eight and, and why it is so difficult. And, you know, the, the conventional wisdom would say, wow, you know, you look at Bill Self's record in it and say, it's easy to understand why he thinks it's the hardest round. He has a bad record there. And I kind of countered with the idea of Bill Self covers for a lot of his team's deficiencies. And that's why when you give him four days to work with his record in the NCAA tournament is stellar. Think of the last three tournament losses. I believe they've all been, you know, that, that second day of the, the two game sets. So I do think I think it's the hardest because I, I think it's in in some ways I think the second the elite eight the the round of thirty two game in the national championship I think those games are more on the players than any other team and I think if you look at the teams that excel in those games it, it's kind of lazy to say this sometimes but it's a lot of teams that just kind of have gutted out intangibles that get the job done you think back to the 2012 run and how it wasn't easy for that team you think back to the 08 run what was that elite eight game it was that davidson game they were behind with like two minutes left they have to gut it out they have to you know basically force the ball out of steph curry's hands i think those rounds tell you more about your players than just about any other game you play throughout the entirety of the season, maybe a conference tournament championship. Maybe that can tell you a lot about your players. So in that regard, I do understand it being kind of the hardest round for the team because it's a lot of emotion. It's a lot of, all right, guys, we've been working for this all year. We need our instincts to take over. And so uh, I, I forget no what else you to prep. Asked, yeah. I mean, you, you asked, yeah. you, you basically are preparing for one of the top eight teams in the country in theory in with a one-day turnaround yeah and and they're doing it for you so it's just you know it's like gut check time it's it's who's gonna who's gonna step up and make plays so in that regard i i bet it is it's a it's a bitter pill to swallow when you're going into the final four and you're putting so much of this on your team and basically saying you know we got to come together and get it done so in that in that regard you know just think about it from from like a like a mental standpoint i bet it is the hardest round to lose it i think i think it depends on what program you're you're coaching yes, for of course of course if you're if you're davidson i'm sure that losing in the first round in 2008 mm. would have been more painful than losing in the elite eight like that i'm mm-hmm. sure that they all took losing in the elite eight just fine considering they made it that far uh as an aside about that bill self said after the oregon game that it's been his experience that every tournament you have a game where you play like crap and you just have to find a way to win that game. Davidson was that game in 2008, and they won that game. Uh, this year, it was Oregon, and last year it was Villanova. The second part of my question, though, was just whether or not KU fans should feel more or less disappointed by this loss and this defeat than Villanova Oh, yes. Um, you know, I think we'll disagree on this one. I think this, the team, I think this year's team was worse than last year's team. I just think they had an NBA player. So I think that covered a lot of deficiencies. I, I don't think KU fans should be more disappointed. I, I know the, the sprint center factor, but Oregon was a tricky matchup, as was Villanova the year before. I just think when you look at Perry Ellis, you looked at Wayne Selden, you looked at basically how many pieces that team had and, and just the fact that you know, they were so close to Villanova. That's a huge factor, too. I mean, Devontae Graham, I, he didn't pick up five phantom fouls. I know a lot of people say that. But he picked up fouls on five 50-50 plays, plays that I've seen called fouls and plays that I've seen not called fouls. So, you know, if you told me his foul count was two after that game, I would have said, you know, okay, or you tell me it's five and it's it's kind of the same thing. So I think that one is probably harder. Perry Ellis goes out with a disappointing end. Nobody really shoots all that well except for Graham. And, you know, they 
have a chance to tie it and Mason and, and Svi have a miscommunication and the ball floats away, I think that would be more disappointing than a game where, you know, Josh Jackson kind of took himself out of the game early on and they were never really in it. But I get I get the other argument, too. I think that in this situation, you can look at and you absolutely should look at it from a a big picture multi-year standpoint. Mm-hmm. I think this loss is more disappointing because and I know KU reloads. The, the window never truly shuts at KU, but to me I felt like this loss to Oregon this was a window shutting. We're going to talk about this a little bit later, but KU could in theory uh lose all five of their starters if if Sfi and and Devonte go to the NBA. This to me, and you know they'll have Yudoka next year, they'll have Malik Newman, they'll have uh, Billy Preston and a bunch of other guys, LeGerald Vick back. But you have to just, you have to think that this, anytime you have a national player of the year and a top three, maybe five NBA pick leaving, I mean, that's, that has to be as close as a window gets to shutting at KU. Mm-hmm. And he's replaced all five starters at different points, but you know, that, that Oh nine team might be the biggest miracle in terms of the big 12 streak in terms of them winning of any under bill self. So it's yeah. not easy to do. It's just not easy to do. I feel like with as wide open as the final four is this year and as tantalizing as it looks, I mean, there are two one seeds. It's not that wide open, but um, with as tantalizing as it, as it looks in some of the matchups, I mean, especially the left side of the bracket right now, I feel like this has to be a more disappointing loss for KU fans. And you guys can all weigh in and, and chime in at us when we, when we put this on Twitter and uh, just kind of let us know what you think. But I think if, if mm-hmm. I'm a KU fan, I feel like last year there was at least, and I got this feel at the banquet too, I felt like there was the postseason banquet. I felt like there was a feel of optimism. Like, yeah, we're losing Perry, Wayne, you know, but people thought, I mean, a lot of people looked at Wayne leaving like, okay, you know, it's time for you to leave anyway. Like, we we can probably do better than you. And I I don't agree with that. I think Wayne was actually a little bit underrated in his time, even though Mm -hmm. he only slightly got better from year to year. Uh, There was that feel, and I feel like now people are, like, desperately clinging to Devontae Graham and... and, (laughs) And Svi Mikhailuk, not not in a pathetic way. I'm not trying to make fun of anybody, but you know, you see polls like retweet to show Svi and Devante that they're appreciated and that they should stay. It's like if it's the best move yeah. for them, they're going to go. There's no amount of retweets or favorites you can get that's going to change their opinion. <laughs> that. So that's hey, why. I, if this gets ten thousand retweets, will you come back for your senior year? <laughs> not only will he do that, but he will go to prom with you. Wow, wow. Yeah. I, I want to ask you. If KU was, I, I was just thinking about this, just kind of popped in my head. If KU was switched with Gonzaga, so playing all those West teams and whatnot, do you think KU would be in the Final Four? The tournament is 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 such a crapshoot. You know, it's I can't, so random. I yeah. couldn't tell you. I mean, I feel like, uh, I mean, Arizona going out early probably would have helped KU's cause, but I, I don't know. I, I just, I mean, we've seen KU have a lot of close games against West Virginia. It's all, it's all in theory. I mean, Northwestern gave Gonzaga a close shot. I mean, it's all about more than anything. This tournament is about if the ball bounces your way, like we saw at the end with the, the rebound that was tipped out by Josh Jackson away from Frank Mason's arms. And then, uh, Oregon was able to push it to a nine point lead. It's, it's all about the way the ball bounces. Okay. You had four players in the point for that or in the, in the paint for that rebound. And none of them got it. Two of them weren't even close. And it's uh, it's all about just the way the ball bounces, and sometimes it sometimes it bounces your way, and sometimes it doesn't. Now I'm not saying that that's why KU lost this game; they lost by 14. I think Oregon was the superior team, and I think mostly the biggest reason to me why KU lost was just because shots weren't going in. Now I I thought Oregon shot a lot better from three than they did when I ended up looking at at it in the uh, post game, but I mean they still shot 44. percent They went 11 for 25. That's pretty damn impressive. The biggest difference to me was KU going five for twenty-five from from three mm-hmm. and Devontae going zero for six. Um, I, I want to ask you though, what do you think? We're going to get into some of the more specifics here in a little bit, but what are the biggest reasons you would identify why KU lost to Oregon? They, I mean, keeping in mind that the Jayhawks won their first three tournament games by an average of thirty points and just completely manhandled Purdue, the Big Twelve or Big Ten champion. Well, I'll, I'll give you two right off the top, and I'll say one is the way Josh Jackson played. He played, you know, got into instant foul trouble. I kind of wrote about this, cjonline.com. He got in instant foul trouble. He was out of the game. The Jayhawks held their own. But it was when he came back in that, you know, Oregon scored seven of their next eight baskets uh, or their next eight attempts. 
just because he, he played timid and he admitted that after the game. You know, he said he, he probably played a little shy. He took himself out of it. So I, th- I think his performance until the final moments, I think that hurt them a lot. I think shot making, I, I think they got so many, n- not even just open, semi-open looks and things that, that I, you, usually some of them will fall. I mean, Frank Mason goes 2 of 8 for 3. He's a 50% three-point shooter. Devontae Graham goes 0 of 6 for 3. Josh Jackson, who's a 40% three-point shooter or close to it, goes 0 of 2 for 3. Lajero Vick is 1 of 5 from 3. I mean, these are so many. These, these are just shot after shot that should fall. And I think the third reason is Oregon's defense. I think the combination of their rim protection with the matchup zone really bothered Kansas. I thought Bell was magnificent. He looked like, he, he made it look like you would have never guessed that Oregon was missing an interior player you know out for the rest of the year just the way they this game and so I, I think those were probably the three reasons the three biggest reasons they lost I want to get into a, that matchup zone a little bit more could you just explain that in in layman's terms a little bit for the listeners <laughs> because uh Landon Lucas was asked about that and he kind of said yeah it's a little ironic in a way because that's exactly what Villanova did to us last year and caused us so many problems can you just explain why that befuddled KU so much and seemed to confuse them yeah well and and I'm sure I'm I'm sure they prepared for it, which is probably the part that makes it the most disappointing. Josh Jackson, I think, talked about it after the game that it's a little bit different, you know, going against guys like their scout team. He wasn't trying to disparage them, uh, obviously. But, you know, basically it's, it's very similar to a man-to-man con- to a man-to-man concept. The on-ball defender typically plays man-to-man. Uh, but it's very, like... It's tricky to explain. It's basically it combines concepts of zone and man, obviously, and basically away from the ball. There's a lot more switching, a lot more things that go on. Guys can replace each other, but you typically keep your anchor in the paint. That that's a big concept of keeping the matchup zone, which is why I think Bell got eight blocks or something crazy like that. And honestly, when you play it really well, you're you're keeping your your players in the right position, like a zone, but you're not allowing someone like Bill Self to run offense like he would against you know a two three or a three two that can lead to a dunk. So it, it's tricky. It's not unbeatable because you know it's a lot more similar to it. It has a lot of concepts of man to man, and and honestly, probably the best way to beat it is just to attack it and force players, you know, into other zones, especially the on ball player, and to get them out of position. It just didn't seem like KU was aggressive enough in doing that. And again, I think a lot of that falls on Josh Jackson, who admitted that you know he didn't do as much attacking as he needed to do. Um, it's hard to explain. I'm sure I've done a terrible, terrible job doing that. Um, it, but I, it's like an amoeba, but with like man to man principles, <laughs> if that makes any sense. That makes perfect sense, actually. <laughs> that, that, that makes the most sense of anything you said. You know, obviously, the th- we're going to get into a lot of this. The three-point shooting, Josh Jackson's timidness, uh, some, of the, some, of the, some of the other stuff that, you know, Bell just being a dominant force, getting 13 rebounds uh, double, in a double-double effort for Oregon. I think Bill Self said that he, more than anybody else, was the reason why Oregon won that game. He went five for six from the field. Uh, just a guy that Landon Lucas the day before described as a glue guy, and he just... I mean, that's exactly what he was. He was like super glue. That's basically huh. what that's basically what he was. He had seven offensive rebounds for Oregon. Uh, and Landon Lucas, you know, he played 33 minutes and got three rebounds. He, he, you know, I've never been around an athlete that has shouldered more blame than him after the game. He said, you know, he was so disappointed himself and in himself and how he didn't want to go out that way. I think it's important to remember this KU loss was about more than one person. Yeah. You, know, you could say that Lucas, Graham, and Jackson all shared equal responsibility for what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it's not even looking at it from a negative standpoint. I've just seen a lot of people single out individual people on social media, and I just, I just don't think that that's fair. Well, and one thing I would add to that too, with the Lucas point, is something that's actually frustrated me on on social media is seeing a lot of people say, you know, Lucas just was not capable of handling Bell, like. You know, the last game, Lucas was matched up against Caleb Swanigan, and Swanigan couldn't score in the post on him. I think he shot something like two of six in the post with a couple turnovers on Lucas to the point where he can shoot threes, but he was camped outside the three-point line firing away. And then, you know, he has a bad game. He had a Landon Lucas by his standards and just overall had a very bad game. I think he only had three rebounds or so. So, and, and you're right. He obviously, you know, talking to you, talking to the media, he did shoulder a lot of that blame for the loss. At the same time, you know, people have now turned this. It's amazing, like, how narratives spin. And I, I've seen a lot of this was all season surviving with this and, you know, on and on. People people do forget. I talked about this on 810 too. If you take Landon Lucas off the Jayhawks this year, 
you're you're missing a huge piece of them. You're missing what Bob Huggins called the most valuable player in the Big 12. And honestly, if you look at the schedule and how many close games they played, and then you start to imagine, even if Lucas is just worth, you know, six, seven points a game over what his replacement would be, the Jayhawks have a lot more losses. They're not a one seed, and they probably don't win the Big 12. So, it, you know, it's just, it's good to put it all in perspective. Right, and I think that's all stuff that'll settle in for KU fans. Yeah, uh, for sure. In the in the weeks and months to come, but I think right now it's just uh, it's easy to try to search for a scapegoat. Uh, okay, I want to ask you about the three point shooting. Ku obviously went to five for twenty five. Bill Self after the game in the hallway said, uh, he, "You know they've taken a lot of contested or semi contested threes this year, and luckily they've gone in for them. But at this point, you know they just didn't. It kind of was seemed like a longer explanation of his fool's gold comment that he made a few years ago after the." Texas Tech win where they had a, a whole bunch of them uh, in Lubbock, I, I believe. I think that's I think I'm remembering that correctly. Do you think that this game <laughs> should make should or will make Bill Self more leery about three point based offenses in the future? I think this was uh, a team that he's coached in is now 14 full seasons at KU that shot more threes than any other. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for asking that question, Matt. One of the rare things that I happen to have very old research on uh, that I got to continue this year because, you know, KU has obviously lost in the Elite Eight back-to-back years, and it was the round of 32 the two years before that. Um, The reason I suspect Bill Self is so especially leery of the three ball is in his last four tournament losses, the team has shot 5 of 25 in 2017. That's 25%. 6 of 22 uh, in 2016. That's worse than 30%. 6 of 21. In 2015, that is, again, worse than 30%. And 5 of 16 in 2014, again, worse than 33%. So I I can understand why Bill Self might be a little bit leery of this shot that has basically taken him out of the tournament in four straight years. And the one year it didn't, it was that Michigan game in 2013 when the team was up and had like a 90-something percent chance win expectancy and then, you know, kind of blew the late lead. So I, I can understand certainly why he might be a little bit leery of that at the same time, you know. KU's only chance to get back into that game with, you know, with Oregon was going to be hitting those shots. Devontae Graham had a bunch of shots rim out, but that that was what they did need to get back into that game. And, you know, on a day it wasn't falling, you know, it's there, there's not much you can do. No. And, you know, I, I don't think it should affect how Coach Shelf looks at the three point shot at all. Mm-hmm. You look at his personnel and if, if he had like Purdue's uh, roster of Haas and Swanigan, then by all means, have an inside-out attack. Go to the rim, you know, kick it inside, make them beat you inside. He yep. just didn't have that this year. There's nothing, mm-hmm. even if he, I mean, th- this was built self adapting a lot to his roster and his personnel, but, I mean, he had to. If he, if he didn't, they wouldn't have won the Big 12. They wouldn't have gotten a one seed. They wouldn't have made it out of the first weekend of the tournament, I don't think. I think we, they, I don't think that KU is as good of a team as the team that blew out Michigan State and Purdue, and I don't think KU is as bad of a team as the team that lost by 14 to Oregon, I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. And mm-hmm. I think the, I think the, the kind of uh, the truth is swayed a little bit by threes and, and how well <laughs> they shot in the first couple weekend or the first couple games and then how poorly they shot in the last one. You know, you know what, you know what game I think accurately describes KU as a team, in my opinion, what's that? I would say the game at Oklahoma, not because, they were down to Oklahoma, and Oklahoma was kind of a bad team. I'm not saying they were bad, but that to me was so much of their season. They kind of dug themselves a hole and then, you know, like turned it on, showed their superiority, put together a dominant stretch, but for some reason never really blew opponents out. And I'm not saying that caught up to them in the tournament, but I just kind of latched onto that comment you made about how they're not as good as one game, they're not as bad as one game. That that game, the one at Oklahoma, I guess you could do the one at home as well, um, but they didn't win convincingly. And they, you know, showed some weaknesses early on. I think if I had to pick a game, I think that would describe KU's season to me. Yeah, and you mentioned that Oklahoma game. I think that was one of seven times that they came back this year from a double-digit deficit to win. They also came back five times from deficits of at least eight points, including nine against uh, Duke in the second game of the season. So this is, you know, it's something I wrote about at HawksZone.com the day after the, the loss. It's it's something that you can look at and point to this team and say they should have a lot more losses than they than they finished with. But you can also look and say that two of their five losses ended up coming in overtime against teams that got season-high outputs from three. So I feel like, I don't know, this is the one word I would use to describe this season for KU is fascinating. Hmm. Uh, 
But I, I just think it was, and, and it was a wild ride, and a lot of that had to do with the three-point shooting, a lot of why they came back and won, and then, you know, a couple of their losses had to do with three-point shooting as well. But uh, I, I just hope that, you know, I don't. I think that this is not necessarily an incorrect way to play basketball. I, huh. I think it was an exciting, fun way to watch the watch uh, watch the game with the fast transition offense and three point shooting. And you know, I, I just don't necessarily think that. I, I would hope Bill Self isn't sitting at home thinking, "Man, if we just kept to my inside out philosophy <laughs> and had another big and Yudoka didn't get hurt." Well, I mean, you laugh, but you were saying that you thought at one point, if Udoka stayed healthy, he could have played Udoka and Lucas together at the same time. Which I in think the was, in the Purdue game. Well, not only that, but just yeah. if he stayed healthy, they could have done that throughout the the Big Twelve oh, conference play. Well, yeah, but I was I, I was saying I, I didn't. Yeah, no, I when I brought that up, and I brought it up on several past shows, I brought that up as a mistake and a reason why I think you'd never want to root for someone to get injured, but a reason why I think Yudoka getting injured earlier in the year may have actually, you know, forced Bill Self to go all in on the four-guard lineup when I, when I bring that up. Mm-hmm. A couple more things I want to mention uh, before we get out of here. Frank Mason's Final Four, uh, the, the absence of a Final Four for Frank yeah. Mason, do you believe that that's going to affect his legacy? He's, he finished... I think sixth all time on the KU scoring chart. He had a three at the very end in garbage time that would have tied him with Sharon Collins in scoring that uh, he didn't score. But again, that's, you know, <laughs> we're, we're all looking at these things. It's like had, you know, they advanced one more round in the big 12 tournament than he would yep. pass Sharon Collins. All of that to me is, is stupid. The scoring record and where he stands in scoring. He, he didn't play nearly as much as Sharon did as a freshman. I think, I think Frank Mason clearly had a better career than Sharon Collins and he's going to have something that Sharon didn't have. And that's a player of the year trophy from maybe multiple outlets. Uh, if he gets the wooden and the Naismith, but you know, he, he went eight for 20 in this game, two for eight from three, as you mentioned, finished with 21 points. I think that this game would have been over in the first half. Had he been in a funk too, he scored 15 straight team points for KU at one point, uh, after Lucas ended it with the layup, helping them get within three, I think this game would have been over a lot earlier had Frank not not showed up in that first half. And I also think that some of the some of the buckets he made, some of the floaters were just absolutely incredible and remarkable, and, and showed how much of a better shooter he's become. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my take is I don't think it should affect his legacy at all. I think anybody looking at this, looking at last year and this year, KU did not miss the Final Four because of Frank Mason. Frank Mason is not one of the reasons they lost to Oregon, and Frank Mason is definitely not the biggest reason why they lost to Villanova. I, I'm not even sure I would put him in the top three. So yeah. I think he did his part, and, and it's tough in a team sport where you're one of ten players on the court to you know, assert your will enough to carry an entire group to the Final Four. Well, it's a good question. It's, it's interesting to think about Frank Mason's legacy just because – when, when I think about Sharon Collins, this might be different for, for KU fans, but when I think about Sharon Collins, I don't necessarily think Final Four first thing because, you know, while he, was a, he played a lot, he was a sophomore, and he, he made maybe the second biggest play of the national championship game comeback, you know, when he, when he got the steal in the three. I don't, that's not what I associate Sharon Collins with. He wasn't one of the best players on the team. He wasn't one of the best three players on that team. So I, I think of him as a junior when he carried the team, when it, it was one of two times KU could have, you know, has been rebuilding under Bill Self, the other time being 2012 when they, you know, reached the national championship game with a roster that was like basically six deep. But that that's how I think of Sharon. I think of Sharon's junior season that asserted him as, you know, one of the best players in the nation. And, you know, to some extent, it's how I think about Thomas Robinson. I don't think first thing, you know, of the national championship game and him playing against Anthony Davis, I think of all the moments when he was a sophomore coming off the bench, there was some question, you know, he's going to be good. How good will he be? And he, you know, KU is supposed to be rebuilding essentially, and he essentially turns into the second best player in the nation. So uh, I don't think it hurts Frank Mason's legacy. Now, I think if he carried him to a national championship, we'd be talking about Danny Manning status. We'd be talking about a whole nother level of, of Mason legacy. But if the question is, does it hurt his legacy? I would say no. I, I don't think it changes his legacy from the best season of any player Bill Self has ever coached and probably the best season by any Kansas player since Danny Manning will belong to Frank Mason, individually speaking. Now, if you want to debate anything else with postseason stuff, that's all, you know, that's obviously up for debate. But I don't think that part of his legacy changes. I just think he could have helped himself uh, by carrying them to a national championship. Right. And like I said, I mean, I, I would have more ease saying that his legacy 
is called into question because of the, the lack of a final four. But it's like I said earlier, he didn't, yeah. they didn't lose because of him. It's not like Perry Ellis last year. And I'm not saying Perry Ellis is the sole reason why they lost to Villanova, but he basically no showed in that game. I think he had two or three points. Yeah. Um, well, we had this conversation before some of these games was, you know, Frank Mason is not going to go out shooting 10 shots, shooting nine shots. He's going to shoot a bunch of times. And as you said, it's like that old Breaking Bad quote. He wasn't in danger. He was the danger. He was, when the rest of the team was failing, he was going to take all the shots. And, you know, he took over. He just got tired down the stretch. But uh, for my money, Frank Mason, in terms of development and, and just what he became by a senior year, I, I've never seen a player follow his trajectory. It's kind of like Buddy Heald, but... It's so underrated how important Frank Mason was as a sophomore, let alone as a junior. And, and I think to to grow on top of that, uh, I think, and how much growth he showed, I, I that's kind of ridiculous. And I think that's part of why this hurts so much for KU fans is because mm-hmm. more than any other player, I think they wanted it for Frank Mason, the national title, the, at least the Final Four. Yeah. Uh, Another player that a lot of people are talking about legacy in the last couple of days is Josh Jackson. As you mentioned, he picked up two fouls uh, before the 17-minute mark, I believe, of the first half. He came back, never really got in rhythm. As a matter of fact, his, his return in the first half, you know, Gerald Vick actually filled in pretty admirably for him. I mm-hmm. think he had seven points in, in Jackson's absence. But uh, Jackson's return to the court kind of coincided with uh, KU's you know, kind of falling apart at the end of the first half and to the point where I think I think uh, Bill Self had to pull him again before the end of the half. And I think he put Vic back in, uh, if I remember correctly. I'm not I'm not sure. Maybe you can look that up while I'm talking about this. But, you know, that that's part of why, you know, everybody that was comparing Josh Jackson to Andrew Wiggins, you know, it was the comparison that was being made before he even got here. A couple of top overall prospects coming in. Wiggins, the better scorer. Jackson, maybe the better stat stuffer. Uh, I always thought it was premature to judge Josh Jackson or compare Josh Jackson to Andrew Wiggins, Mm -hmm. at least to be fair to Andrew Wiggins, because Josh Jackson's story was incomplete. And I think at the very least, even though he did finish with a double-double, he had 12 rebounds and 10 points. He shot three for eight from the field, 0 for two from three. At the very least, uh, I mean, he did have three offensive rebounds. At the very least, you know, it wasn't as bad as... Wiggins last tournament game, but I think it was important that we wait and see. And I think him uh, going out the way he did, I think his defense mm-hmm. was pretty detrimental for KU in this game, just because of his his kind of a ten, uh, kind of a tepidness, as you alluded to earlier. I think I think it was a, a big reason why KU ended up losing. Yeah, well, I, I would say this: the biggest difference between Andrew Wiggins and Josh Jackson. I'm not trying to be unfair to Andrew Wiggins because I think he gets a bad rap generally. Is Andrew Wiggins in that last game? was one of six from the field, and, and he shot two free throws. Now you contrast that with Jackson. You mentioned the 10 points. I think he, what would you say, he took eight shots. I think he might have had like five assists or something like that. Here, I have his stats in front of me. He took eight shots, six free throws, five assists, one of the ball in his hands, and he was going to take shots down the stretch, and he was going to go after the ball down the stretch. I So, I, you know, I was a little bit surprised. We talked about this briefly after the game. I didn't expect the reaction to him that I think happened initially. I think he had a very bad game, arguably one of the most detrimental games of his career. Probably not like the worst in terms of impact, but it maybe the most turnovers. No other yeah. KU player had more than one. So probably the most detrimental game uh, uh, is what I, I would call it. But you know, at the same time, I, I think he'll be remembered a little bit differently than Wiggins. I, I, I have gone back and forth with a couple of people on Twitter about this. I think Wiggins and Jackson were each the right player for what their team needed. And uh, so I, I think looking at it, I think I think KU fans will eventually remember Jackson with some favor. And I suspect he will also have his name up in the rafters at, at one point just because of the one, the All-American spot, the freshman of the year in the Big 12. And uh, as you've mentioned, I think there's a recruiting bump with that, too. If KU is is willing to put in one-year players that don't win national titles up in the rafters, then Josh Jackson should be in. I think it's just a matter mm-hmm. of standards and whether or not you believe they should do that. I personally could could not really care less about who they decide to put up in the rafters or not. But um, <laughs> I think there are a lot of people that would argue, I mean, the person was there for one year. How are yeah. you going to put them in over somebody that had an impact over four years that might not ever make it up there? So, Well, you've, you've heard what I think about that too, which is I think, just for anyone who hasn't heard – I think, like, personally, I don't care too much, but I do think way too many people get, you know, into Hall of Fames and get their jerseys retired, and I, I'd love to see that number slash to to a very, very much smaller number than it is. But I do think under the guidelines they've laid out, you know, 
it makes. I want to see actually like I want to see a tournament of everybody whose name is up in the rafters. <laughs> I want to see them all Hunger forced to play. No, like a basketball tournament. Yeah, they're but all Hunger forced Games to play. Sure, and like the team that wins, that's the five jerseys. Maybe one guy off the bench that gets to go up in the rafters. Now that might be a little bit unfair to the guys that played in the fifties and sixties and the guys that are actually no longer with us. But um, maybe we could have <laughs> and like Max Fal- Falkenstein. That would be maybe, very unfair to him. Maybe their descendants could could represent them in this tournament. That, well, that actually would be a horrible idea now that I think about it. You know, my my thing has always been I think it should be a revolving door. I, I think you should just take the ten best players who ever played somewhere. And I understand it's all problematic, but this is all hypothetical, you know, whatever conversation. I just always get mad when I look at the NFL and it's like, who are Hall of Fame quarterbacks in the NFL now? Well, Peyton, you know, in the last few years, Peyton, Aaron Rodgers, Brady, Breeze, you know, uh, some people say Eli, some people say Ben Roethlisberger. And it's like, well, hold on. There are four, five, six quarterbacks playing at the same time that are supposed to be in this elite rank, so elite, they transcend the sport. And you're telling me six of them played in the same year? You need to raise your standards substantially. So that's that's how I feel. But again, with the standards that they've laid out and you know him being an All-American and the recruiting bump, I think he gets his jersey up there. Yeah. Now, uh, Svi Mikhailuk, a guy that, again, we're... We're getting to the 30 or 40 minute mark of this podcast, and we're just now mentioning him, uh, really, and delving into him for the first time. I want to talk about him and Devontae Graham. We already mentioned Devontae Graham, 0 for 7 from the field, 0 for 6 from 3. He just didn't have a shot with him. He, uh, it was tough to hear him in the locker room. It was the quietest I've ever heard him. Yeah. Uh, very down, very, very sad about his performance. Uh, Svi Mikhailuk, though, I mean, he had exactly the game that you would expect from Speed McKayluk. 28 minutes, 4 for 7 from the field, 2 for 4 from 3, 10 points, but no assists, uh, 2 steals, no rebounds, uh, no turnovers. I mean, he when he's not scoring, he kind of becomes invisible at times. I just want to know, I know that these two are really tied in at the hip. You wrote a great feature last week on Hawkstone.com about how close they are. I want to know what your gut tells you about their future and just what your take on the whole situation is. I would like to also add that neither of us have any reporting or any uh, inside information that will affect our conversation <laughs> here about what they're going to do. Just so people don't say, hey, this KU reporter said that he's definitely going to go and yeah. tomorrow on the on the, on the the internet. So don't do that. Yeah. This is all speculation. Sure. Um, well, one, I, I think real quick, actually, about Svi, he'll never get the credit for this because he doesn't talk and he doesn't celebrate he has some of the biggest stones of like any KU player. I mean, this is a guy who was in such a slump coming into big, you know, the Big 12 tournament and people want him out of the starting lineup and things like that. It just seems like all he does is hit big shots. You go back to that Kentucky game, that long two-pointer he took, that was such a big shot in that game. I, I'm They all kind of jumble together now. It was, you know, 30-whatever games through a he season. The, he but, had the three to, to make it six for KU with three minutes left. So It, it just seems and, – and you even go back to that game. I think it was maybe the loss to Iowa State when they had a chance to tie it and they ran a play for him. He'll never get the credit he missed, obviously, but he'll never get the credit – for like his basically big shot taking and making. And sometimes they're very bad shots and, you know, KU just needs someone to get a bucket and he steps back, takes a long two with a hand in his face and it goes in. I thought this was one of those games where if they came back, you know, there there would be a story to write about Svi Mikhailuk and it seemed like he only, he only hit four shots. But when they really needed it, it, it felt like he provided a shot, at least to the end. So draft discussion. Um... If I had to guess right now, you know, I I'd long stand said that I felt like the two of them would go just on a gut feeling if KU went on a tournament run, kind of similar to how a bunch of the juniors left uh, after the 08 team. I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm really not sure either way. I don't know if he's made up his mind either, but I, I have to think seeing his name projected in the second round, if Devontae Graham could test the waters, get some good feedback, it wouldn't shock me if he went. If you went gun to my head what happens right now I'd probably say they both stay but I I, I don't know I, I could easily see both leaving um, you know thank you for mentioning my feature I appreciate that I did mention they're incredibly close so it wouldn't shock me if that was even something they talked about together or if one of their decisions had some kind of bearing on the other but at the same time you know they're both individuals they're going to make the best decisions for themselves and that's what you know Bill Self will want them to do as well 
Yeah, and for what it's worth, DraftExpress.com, not that they're the be-all, end-all, has Devontae Graham as the 50th overall pick in the NBA draft, and Svi Mikhailuk is not listed. Well, so, I think that's – I think I could be wrong on this, so I'll, I'll maybe sure. double-check this, but I think that's because they have Svi going in the 2018 draft. Okay. Well, if that's the case, I mean, it was certainly surprising to see that because so many people had him as a uh, fringe first-round pick at the beginning of the year. So if that's the case, I, I don't think there's a scenario where he doesn't get drafted if he comes out. I think there's so many people, so many scouts in the NBA that just are in love with his shot and, and his uh, spot-up three-point shooting ability that I think he could absolutely uh, end up drafted. So if I had to guess, you know, it's it became a lot tougher after this game because I think human emotion mm-hmm. would lead you to believe if you're Devonte Graham, come back and be the guy, you know, have the Frank Mason type season. But even when you think about that, and I know Frank Mason and Devonte Graham are different players and they have different heights and different sizes and everything like that. Like Frank Mason only just basically is squeaked in at the end of the draft express product, uh, projections i think he's the second to last pick and as we saw last year with the amount of foreign players that aren't on that list now that dot it and the guys like Svee that are classified in a different draft yeah. i think that that basically tells me mm-hmm. that frank probably wouldn't get drafted if if we were just going by the draft express product mm-hmm. projections my gut tells me that i believe they're both gone but i can't tell you for sure obviously we'll know more in the next yeah. uh, couple days i think they at least will i don't think either of them will definitively leave Right away, uh, I think they'll both test the waters. I think they'll both go to the camp and kind of get the feedback. Yeah. But um, I, I do think that ultimately they're both going to like what they hear. And if you're going to get drafted, I mean, I don't see Devontae Graham moving into the first round no matter what kind of a year he has next year. Maybe that would change. I mean, he has the size. Maybe if he were to put up a, a Frank Mason-like season, it would skyrocket him like Buddy Heald. But, you know, from a human emotion standpoint, you know Devontae Graham is thinking – you know, how tough of a pill it would be to swallow to go out on an 0 for 7 shooting performance, 0 for 6 from 3, just struggling the way he did. But there's no guarantee yeah. he's going to make the final four next year. And I'm sure he's thinking about that. There's there's no guarantee that they won't have, you know, another build, a better pill to swallow at the end of their season. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I had to... If I had to say what I think is going to happen, I, I think KU is going to lose all five starters, but that's just that's just my gut. I have no in- information about that. Yeah, and, and I did look it up. Svee's projected as a first-round pick, late first round of next year's draft, so just not this year's draft. Because I've seen a lot of that talk going around that, uh, you know, why would he leave? He's not projected to be drafted, as you pointed but, out. Yeah. yeah. It is a deeper point guard class this year than it would be next year from everything that I'm hearing, but uh, yeah. I don't think that that would mean he's not going to get drafted. I just think maybe he'd get pushed to the second round or something you, to that effect. But. Do you think Frank Mason gets drafted? Because I absolutely think he's going to get drafted. No, I don't think he gets drafted. I think he's. I think there are too many good point guards in this draft, and I think that he does stick with an NBA team, and I think he deserves to be in the NBA. I just think people are going to fall in love with so many foreign guys that it's just going to push him off of the draft board like it did Selden and Ellis last year. Well, I think it's a little bit different in terms of like late end second rounders because usually though you draft guys who you never expect to come over and play for you. So I'd have to look at like what teams are drafting and you know if they could actually use a player or if they want to draft like a draft and stash guy who you'll never hear about and in five years will still be playing in Europe. Uh, but at the same time, I, I really do think he's too good of a player uh, for him not to get drafted, and I kind of jokingly brought this up like 10 times, but I think there's like a real point to it. The Charlotte Hornets, they always seem to draft like the best college player. I think they took Frank Kaminsky, Cody Zeller, uh, Kemba Walker. That's like kind of their thing. They get made fun of every year they do it because it never works. Um, but the better, the bigger point there is when you see a guy, Kemba Walker's good, didn't mean to disparage him, but when you see a guy who's that dominant in college, it's a very easy sell to your team one. Hey, look how amazing this player is. He's going to be fitting in with you guys just fine. It's an easy sell to your fans. And I think it's easy for a GM to fall in love with a guy like that or a scout to say, look, it's the 57th pick in the draft. We're talking about a guy who lit up Juwan Evans all year, the guy who lit up Monte Morris all year. So I, I think in that regard, I, I do think he ends up getting drafted. But that's that's just my gun it. I, I don't think I'm not sure Devontae Graham would get drafted. I think he would too, and I definitely think Fee would if he went out. But I, as I said, I think well, two of those guys. Are I feel like if Devontae Graham doesn't think he's going to get drafted, I think he comes back. But I think Agreed. he's, I think he is going to get drafted. But 
regardless of what happens, this is all speculation. I do yeah. think Frank Mason either way starts next year in the. Do team. you think Frank Mason is gone? What do you mean? Is he is he going for the draft or is he coming back for a, for a fifth year? Um, I think it would be very <laughs> difficult for him to do that. I guess he could apply for a a retroactive medical red shirt for yeah, Perry Ellis year. He was dealing with something, yeah, something in that <laughs> freshman year. Just really, uh, he hurt his back it. carrying the team. <laughs> yeah, um, a couple more quick quick thoughts before we finish this up. Uh, Carlton Bragg didn't play a minute against Oregon. Uh, I have to just say, you know, nobody nobody had an opportunity to. Well, I guess people had an opportunity to ask Bill Self about why that was, but um, I was in the locker room talking to players, and I didn't get a chance to get out to Bill in the hallway to ask that. Uh, maybe we'll get another opportunity to kind of figure out if he was dealing with an injury or something. But you know, I I talked to some people before the game, and they thought this was a decent matchup for Carlton Bragg, a, a team that likes to run. You know, you'd think that he would be more in line to fit that mold of a you know covering a team that likes to run or keeping pace at least on the offensive end than uh, Dwight Colby was. Not a single minute for Carlton Bragg in this game, so. I want to know what you think, if you had to guess, what Carlton Bragg's future is. Again, with no inside information, Mm -hmm. this has been just the year from hell for Carlton Bragg. I could not have envisioned a worse year for Carlton Bragg than the year he had for KU. With the -the off-the-court stuff, with the uh, on the court, just not only just miscasting after Dwight Colby, or Dwight, not Dwight Colby, Yudoka Azubuki's injury, moving Carlton into the five, which he just never got the hang of, you know, every loose ball, it just seemed like he had on, you know, catcher's mitts trying to get a rebound. Uh, he gained all that weight only to have to lose it because he was never comfortable playing at that, you know, 245 pounds. Right. I mean, this this was not a season that I expected from Carlton Bragg. I'm not even sure this is a season that the most pessimistic person on Carlton Bragg expected. I mean, he was a five-star recruit coming out of college, usually or coming out of high school. Usually a lot of guys take that leap from their freshman to sophomore year. He was, I mean, you, you can't, you can't undersell it. He was a non-factor at the end of the season. And, you know, if I told you at the beginning of the year that Carlton Bragg would play zero minutes in KU's last game of the season, you would think he either got kicked off the team or was hurt. And neither of those things happened. He just, yeah, as far as we know, maybe he was hurt, but, but yeah. as far he he played against uh, Purdue. So, you know, I, I, my gut tells me, I don't think he's, I mean, he's not going to make it in the NBA. I, I guys fall in love with, with guys recruiting sizes and things like that. And, you know, guys like Cliff Alexander that kind of flamed out at KU ended up, you know, at least getting their opportunity in the NBA to play some, I think if anything, Carlton might transfer, but again, that's all speculation. He just, if anything, I think he just screams that he needs yeah. a change of scenery. Well, I don't disagree with you about the change of scenery. His age complicates that because if he does transfer, play a whole season, and does have aspirations to play at the next level, by the time the NBA draft would come around after the full season he played in, uh, he'd be almost but, but, 24 years old. But but what team would want him right now? No, I mean, that's I, mean, I get what problem. you're saying. Having to but sit I'm, out is an issue, but but I don't, I don't see I'm, him as contributing next year on this what i'm saying is the the only way that i do think it works out for him is if you know he takes the summer and has kind of like you know a frank mason type summer not in that big of a leap but just kind of in terms of figuring things out so that's why i i'm not sold on the idea he's going to transfer just yet just because i I think that's his basically his only chance of going pro at this point Mm -hmm. is figure is hoping he figures things out next year now whether he will or not that's another story i would say just in terms of this game you know this is another one of those things that wouldn't shock me either way whatever the answer turned out being you know obviously I was in you know the locker room with you too but um you know Dwight Colby only played four minutes in this game this wasn't a game where Kansas even went to the bench all that much and I think part of that's because when you're losing you you don't want to take your best players out of the game you have no reason to screw around with this you're you're gonna win and die with your starters you're right but I have to say this though sure he he played in every single game this year that he wasn't suspended he was mm-hmm. suspended for one game against Nebraska. He didn't play. He was suspended for three games from Kentucky, Baylor, Iowa State. He didn't play. Every other game, he at least played in a single minute. Um, his lowest total before this was three minutes at Texas, and Dwight Colby was dominant in that game. Yeah. Even the game against Michigan State where he was so bad that, you know, after the fact, uh, Landon Lucas walked up to Dwight Colby and told him, you saved my career. <laughs> um 
Carlton played five minutes in that game. So I think that with as much as Lucas was struggling, as we sa- as we saw and Dwight Colby was struggling, that Carlton never even it never even seemed to cross Bill Self's mind to put Carlton yeah. in this game. Well, something was something was up. Uh, he'd either completely lost the coaching staff's confidence, or he he developed some kind of an injury in the ten minutes he was playing against Purdue. Well, but I, either way, okay. I just think it was it was the uh, perfect ending to just a hellish season for him. I don't disagree with that. I'm just all I all I'm saying is that my point would be that. It wouldn't shock me either way. It wouldn't shock me if something happened from an injury standpoint. But it also wouldn't shock me if in an elimination game, you know, but that the team was losing by 10 the whole game, Bill Self simply looked at it and said, you know, I'm not going to play this guy who's been killing us all season, you know, less a few games. Sure. This is as someone who predicted foolishly a couple weeks ago that he would have a, a crucial game for KU in the tournament. You know, obviously, as I joked, I was talking about Dwight Colby against Michigan State or whatever it was. Right. So, and, and And he played 10 minutes against Purdue. Had mm-hmm. zero points. He did have six rebounds, but I mean, I, I just if he if the sample truly, size if it, is out. The I, sample I, size is out on Carlton Bragg. We, no, I we understand. We've yet, look. I, I'll just I'll just say this: we've yet to see him show in any way whatsoever over the last two years that he's a good basketball player mm-hmm. in any in any capacity whatsoever. And if it he truly didn't play because the coaching staff didn't have faith in him against Oregon, then he should. I mean, he should probably transfer because he, I mean, he needs a change of scenery, I think. But that's, again, that's just my, uh, you know, unqualified opinion. <laughs> the last thing I want to talk about before we get out of here, what are your final thoughts on this season? I know we've kind of touched on almost everything. And and uh, what are you looking forward to seeing next year? Um, Let's see. I am looking forward to seeing uh, Malik Newman. Uh, and his scoring prowess. I've heard good things about him as a scorer, so I think it'll be it'll be interesting to see his style of scoring. It seems like you know he's a driving guy that he can get into the paint and make plays. I was looking at some old scouting reports, and seems very similar to a certain point guard that was on last year's team. Uh, interested to see if he and Graham get a chance to play alongside each other. And I will say this. I, I am fascinated by the idea that this team could have essentially everyone return who's eligible to return, including Bragg. And then you couple that with the recruits and transfers they have coming in. And I would say this would be one of the best teams in the in the Bill Safaris from day one. Now, I'm not saying it will end up being as good as some of his teams from the last two years. But I think from day one, that team would be incredible. So I think it'd be very interesting to watch You know, some of their early games. I haven't studied their schedule that much. I'm not quite sure when their first big mm-hmm. tests are. Obviously, Champions Classic, things like that. But I think this would be from day one a team that that if everyone returned would be very much a powerhouse. I really am. I can't even begin to say that. I, I just, I, I don't know. Returning. I don't know enough about, well, I don't know who's returning, but if everyone eligible returns, even if that is the case, I mean, well, you don't, Josh, you don't think Josh Jackson's not going to return. I don't, I haven't seen enough from Spew McKayluke to know that he's going to take another jump. Um, I haven't seen enough from Carlson Bragg to, to know that he can play basketball, but, but you I don't haven't think... seen enough. I don't know that Bill, I don't know that Malik Newman, uh, can I mean we've everything we've heard is that people think he's going to lead them in scoring, but I haven't seen it. And Billy Preston, I mean, who knows? What, he could he could be great, and he could be you know just a top fifty prospect. But I mean, we don't, don't forget know. about don't forget about LeGerald Vick. Don't forget about Udoka Azubuki. There I'm there not, are a lot of pieces on this team. Right. No, the most intriguing thing to me is Udoka Azubuki because he's going to be forced to have that second year, and if he can if he can really put it together from a cerebral standpoint and do what Sheck Diallo and Cliff Alexander weren't able to do because they didn't ever have that second year yeah. of being able to figure out the system, being in it for a full year, having a full season of a full year, basically to get, you know, his body in the right shape. Um, and not that, it, I mean, it was when he got hurt. I mean, he was in great shape uh, when he got hurt. I, I just think that that to me is the most interesting thing. How dominant yeah. Can he be? Can he give them that rim protector that they didn't have? And can Mitch Lightfoot kind of in more minutes next year give them that rim protector off the bench that we kind of saw from flashes in him this mm-hmm. season, but never really in a in a long enough spurt to really say that we had enough of a sample size? I'm excited to, to look at next year, and uh, obviously they have a lot of question marks to determine before then. I just don't know enough about the question marks that we do know are going to be there. To, to be able to confidently say anywhere close to the statement that they're go- they could be from day one Bill Self's best team. No, I mean, no, I'm not saying no, I'm not maybe. saying I'm not saying like best team ever from day one, but I'm saying best team in terms of these last few years. Just because I, I look at the starting lineup, if it were Devontae Graham, Malik Newman, LeGerald Vick, 
uh, let's say Billy Preston, let's say Yudoka Azubuki, and then the firepower they would have off the bench, they'd be incredibly deep at big man. It'd be a total antithesis of this team. And then you also throw into that Svi Mikhailuk, a guy who averaged 10 points a game. He, he's going to be 20 years old, so he's basically making his freshman to sophomore jump, but having three years of experience. And that doesn't even account for, you know, they have another point guard recruit. You, you know, you mentioned Mitch Lightfoot. They have Dwight Colby coming back. There are so many pieces to this team that I and Sam Cunliffe comes in, by the way. That's obviously midseason, uh, not day one. But I think if everyone came back other than Jackson, Mason and Lucas. No, I, I absolutely with full confidence would I, I'd say it would be an absolute shock if Bill Self didn't have that team, which would have. Uh, remarkable depth could go 10, 10 or 11 deep, basically, maybe not 11 deep, but 10 deep. I, I'd be pretty shocked if he didn't have that team from day one playing uh, like at the beginning of the year, as good as the team he's had. Not, not saying I, I guess I just team at the end of the year, but as good of a team as he's had at the beginning of the year. I guess I'm just not as, sh- I guess I'm just not as certain about how much of a sure thing guys like uh, Billy Preston and, and Malik Newman and Sam Cunliffe eventually are. And yeah. I just think, I mean, I think losing, I mean, this team had the national player of the year and the best sure. freshman, Bill Self says, from an all-around standpoint he's ever coached. Sure. When you lose both of those things, it's going to be damn tough to, to replace them. But that's what Bill Self's always done. Yeah. And, uh, and again, it's, it's comparing day one. And again, it's comparing day one to day one. It's not comparing day one to the end of the year. It's not comparing, you know, day one of this team to, you know, even mid-season of like the 2008 team. It's just comparing day one to day one. I think this team would start the season. I think Graham would hit the ground running. I think Svevic would hit the ground running. And I think even guys like Carlton, Carlton Bragg, I really do feel like with a summer to figure it out, will at least be a competent basketball player. That is my suspicion. Well, for Scott Chasen, this is Matt Galloway saying thank you for listening today. And if you've been with us for the whole season, thank you for sticking around and uh, getting our takes and our thoughts. Uh, again, you can follow us on Twitter at SChasenCJ and at the Matt Galloway. But that's going to just about do it for this week's edition of the Hawk Zone podcast. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next time.